Welcome to Criminal Sentencing Law. My name is Elise Methven, and this is the third of a series of podcasts which examine the sentencing process in New South Wales, with a focus on local court procedure. In this episode, we examine what a practitioner should look out for when negotiating an agreed statement of facts after a guilty plea. We then move on to the issue of fact-finding and sentencing, including burdens and standards of proof. We will outline the DeSimone principle and discuss the implications of this principle for negotiating agreed facts and the evidence that can be taken into account by the sentencing magistrate or judge. The first issue that we will focus on today is the agreed statement of facts. Following a guilty plea, the prosecution and defence will usually tender by agreement a statement of facts constituting the offence. Section 191 of the Evidence Act defines an agreed fact as a fact that the parties to a proceeding have agreed is not, for the purposes of the proceeding, to be disputed. A key preliminary part of the sentencing process is negotiating agreed facts. It is important that defence lawyers, on instruction from their client, review and negotiate the agreed facts to ensure that they do not contain inaccuracies and do not contain matters that the client does not agree to. This will involve a great deal of back-and-forth negotiations between the defence and the prosecution. As outlined by Justice Smart in the case of the Queen against Crowley, agreed facts should always be carefully checked by all parties' legal representatives and especially by counsel for an offender. This should not be perfunctory. The Crown also has an obligation to ensure that the agreed statement of facts, including the facts and circumstances of the offences upon which it seeks the court to sentence the offender, are presented in a comprehensible fashion. The statement of facts must be framed so that it is clear to the court what is in fact being agreed to by the Crown and the defence. Further, a defence lawyer should ensure that the agreed facts are not just a reproduction of the police facts, which may be inaccurate, incomplete, unintelligible, irrelevant, inadmissible in form, unfairly prejudicial, or all of these things. On the issue of the form and content of the agreed statement of facts, it is essential to consider what the High Court of Australia said in the case of GAS against the Queen. In that case, the High Court summarised the fundamental principles affecting plea agreements, agreed facts and the sentencing process. Therefore, what the Court said in this case is also relevant to our discussion of plea agreements in the first podcast. Firstly, the High Court stated that, It is the prosecutor alone who has the responsibility of deciding the charges to be preferred against an accused person. The judge has no role to play in that decision. Secondly, the High Court stated that it is for the accused person alone who must decide whether to plead guilty to the charge preferred. The High Court then went on to explain that, thirdly, it is for the sentencing judge alone to decide the sentence to be imposed. For that purpose, the judge must find the relevant facts. In the case of a plea of guilty, any facts beyond what is necessarily involved as an element of the offence must be proved by evidence or admitted formally, as in an agreed statement of facts, or informally, as occurred in the present case by a statement of facts from the bar table, which was not contradicted. There may be significant limitations as to a judge's capacity to find potentially relevant facts in a given case. I also want to refer to subsection 2 of section 191 of the Evidence Act here, which provides that evidence is not required to prove, contradict or qualify the existence of an agreed fact unless the court gives leave. Returning to the case of GAS against the Queen, the High Court stated, 
Fourthly, as a corollary to the third principle, there may be an understanding between the prosecution and the defence as to evidence that will be led or admissions that will be made, but that does not bind the judge, except in the practical sense that the judge's capacity to find facts will be affected by the evidence and the admissions. In deciding the sentence, the judge must apply to the facts as found the relevant law and sentencing principles. It is for the judge, assisted by submissions of counsel, to decide and apply the law. There may be an understanding between counsel as to the submissions of law that they will make, but that does not bind the judge in any sense. The judge's responsibility to find and apply the law is not circumscribed by the conduct of counsel. I now want to highlight some important issues in relation to preparing the agreed statement of facts. The statement of agreed facts should ordinarily be in writing and signed by both parties. Subsection 3 of Section 191 of the Evidence Act notes that an agreed fact should be stated in an agreement in writing signed by the parties or, with the leave of the court, stated by a party before the court with the agreement of all other parties. The proposition that plea agreements should ordinarily be recorded in writing was emphasised in the case of GAS against the Queen. There the High Court stated, it will be better to record the agreement in writing and ensure that both prosecution and defence have a copy of that writing before it is acted upon. There may be cases where neither of these courses will be desirable or perhaps possible, but it is to be expected that they would be rare. In addition, Guideline 20 of the New South Wales Department of Public Prosecution's Prosecutor's Guideline states that if a version of the facts is negotiated and agreed, the Office of the Department of Public Prosecution's lawyer or Crown Prosecutor involved must prepare or obtain a written statement of agreed facts to be signed on behalf of both parties. A copy must be kept on file with an explanation of how and when it came into being. Guideline 20 also refers to when the DPP will seek views of the victim or police officer in charge. It states, where reference to any substantial and otherwise relevant and available evidence is to be omitted from a statement of facts. The views of the police officer in charge and the victim must be sought about the statement of agreed facts before it is adopted. The views of the victim about the acceptance of a plea of guilty and the contents of a statement of agreed facts will be taken into account before final decisions are made, but those views are not alone determinative. It is the general public, not any private individual or sectional interest, that must be served. Another point to make is that the defence and prosecution must assist the judge by pointing out where facts are in contention and where facts which they adduce are not covered in and may be contrary to the agreed statement of facts. In the case of the Queen against Fours, Justice Howie in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal stated that if there is some area of the facts not covered in the statement and that is in dispute, then this should be made clear to the sentencing judge and the matter determined appropriately by evidence and submissions. Now I want to move on to how the decimony principle should be considered by lawyers when preparing agreed facts. When negotiating the agreed facts, a lawyer should ensure that the facts do not contain matters that may support a more serious offence than the offence that the client has been charged with. This is relevant to the decimony principle established by the 1981 High Court case of decimony. According to the decimony principle, if there are circumstances of aggravation which are not referred to in the elements of an offence, 
the court may have regard to them, but only if they would not make the accused liable to greater punishment. The case of Di Simone involved an offender, Luciano Di Simone, who had been convicted of robbery. In the course of the robbery, he had wounded the victim. The indictment charged that the defendant had used actual violence to a person. The majority of the High Court held that the judge was entitled to take the actual violence into account, but not any wounding caused by the violence, for the wounding was a circumstance of aggravation and not an element of robbery itself. Chief Justice Gibbs in the High Court stated that a judge in imposing a sentence may not have regard to a circumstance of aggravation which should have been charged in the indictment if it was intended that reliance should be placed upon it. He may, of course, have regard to facts which might ordinarily be described as circumstances of aggravation, but which do not fall within the definition of that expression in the code because they do not render the offender liable to a greater punishment. Chief Justice Gibbs also noted in the case of De Simone that the facts relied on by the sentencing judge should not be inconsistent with the jury's verdict. His Honour stated, It is not only in cases in which the offence has been accompanied by circumstances of aggravation that a trial judge may be required, in sentencing, to take an artificially restricted view of the facts. This will be so also in cases where the jury's verdict is inconsistent with the views of the facts that the judge himself has formed, for the judge cannot act on a view of the facts which conflicts with the jury's verdict. However, where the Crown has charged the offender with or has accepted a plea of guilty to an offence less serious than the facts warrant, it cannot rely or ask the judge to rely on the facts that would have rendered the offender liable to a more serious penalty. Chief Justice Gibbs encapsulated the decimony principle when his honour stated, the general principle that the sentence imposed on an offender should take account of all of the circumstances of the offence is subject to a more important and fundamental principle that no one should be punished for an offence of which he has not been convicted. The combined effect of these two principles, so far as is relevant for present purposes, is that a judge, in imposing sentence, is entitled to consider all of the conduct of the accused, including that which would aggravate the offence but cannot take into account circumstances of aggravation which would have warranted a conviction for a more serious offence. In other words, when sentencing an accused, the judge cannot take into account those circumstances of aggravation which give rise to a conviction for a more serious offence, or which would have rendered the offender liable to a more serious penalty. It is therefore important to revise the facts to ensure that the agreed facts exclude matters which aggravate the offence or offences that the accused has pleaded guilty to. Remember that if the client has pleaded guilty, this guilty plea only carries with it an admission of the fulfilment of the legal elements of the offence. It is for the judge to determine the relevant facts in conformity with the essential elements of the crime established by the plea. It is also important to revise the facts to ensure they are not inconsistent with the jury's verdict. Where there has been a jury verdict, then pursuant to the case of the Queen against Saffron number 3, the trial judge applying the criminal onus of proof must decide for the purposes of sentencing what facts the jury accepted. Such findings must not be inconsistent with the jury's verdict. Having discussed the decimony principle, the final issue that we will address today is disputes over fact-finding at sentence, including how burdens and standards of proof operate for the defence and the prosecution. During the sentencing hearing, the judge must make findings as to what the relevant facts are. 
If important facts, such as facts that go towards aggravation, cannot be agreed upon by the defendant and the prosecution, the matter must proceed to a disputed fact hearing. Therefore, the burdens and standards of proof for fact-finding are particularly important where there are facts in dispute or either party wishes to adduce further evidence such as character references, witness testimony or written reports to demonstrate an aggravating or a mitigating factor. Facts may be established by tendering statements, transcripts or sworn evidence. The judge must then determine the sentence to be imposed by applying the legal principles set out in the legislation and case law to the facts as found by the judge. The judge or magistrate must then determine the sentence to be imposed by applying the legal principles set out in legislation and case law to the facts as found. In the High Court of Australia case, The Queen against Albridge, it was acknowledged that a judge's decision in relation to the sentence to be imposed will be very much affected by the factual basis from which the judge proceeds. Particularly, the judge's conclusions about what the offender did and about the history and other personal circumstances of the offender. It should also be reiterated that the task of fact-finding rests with the court. The court is not bound by any agreement between the parties as to what findings the court should make and the weight to be given to any evidence. Where there are disputes between the prosecution and defence on sentence in relation to facts, it is important to be aware of which party bears the burden of proof to prove a fact and what the standard of proof is. In relation to which party bears the burden of proof, the prosecution or the defence, this generally depends on which party wishes the sentencing judge to take a matter or matters into account. The majority of the High Court in the case of the Queen against Albridge held that it may be accepted that if the prosecution seeks to have the sentencing judge take a matter into account in passing sentence, it will be for the prosecution to bring that matter to the attention of the judge and, if necessary, call evidence about it. Similarly, it will be for the offender who seeks to bring a matter to the attention of the judge to do so and, again, if necessary, call evidence about it. We say if necessary because the calling of evidence would be required only if the asserted fact was controverted or if the judge was not prepared to act on the assertion. Generally, for the findings of facts against the offender, the standard of proof is beyond reasonable doubt, the criminal standard. In other words, a sentencing court may not take facts into account in a way that is adverse to the offender's interests, unless those facts have been established by the Crown to the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. This principle is applied to aggravating factors, so that the prosecution bears the burden to prove aggravating factors beyond reasonable doubt. The offender bears the burden of proving on the balance of probabilities, the civil burden, matters which are submitted in his or her favour. This means that mitigating factors must be proved on the balance of probabilities. Note also that there is no requirement that the court should sentence the offender on the basis of the facts most favourable to the accused. Some disputed facts, however, cannot be resolved in a way that goes either to increase or decrease the sentence. These factors are to be treated as neutral for the purposes of sentencing. So that concludes the third podcast of Criminal Sentencing Law, which focused on the preparation of agreed facts and issues relating to the admission of facts in the sentencing hearing. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The next podcast will discuss the purposes of sentencing and how these relate to submissions on sentence.